Okay, Jake, you can start it now. Jake. Jake! Where are you, Jake? Archon! Jake is not here. Well, crap. Greetings, Archons. Welcome to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss various topics regarding combat within the Crucible. Stand at attention and salute your hosts, Sir Jake and Sir Dan. All right, uh, welcome to Sanctimonious, a Jakeless podcast. Uh, today you're stuck with me, Sir Dan. And today, in order to make up for Jake, I brought on not one, but two people to hopefully feel the shoes and the mustache of our fearless Jake. So say hello, Blake and Alex. Hello, Blake and Alex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh my goodness. Dad jokes unite. Let's uh, go. Alex, you stole my thunder. Now I got to save my joke for later. <laughs> you got some time, though. There's plenty of podcasts left. <laughs> A lot of podcasts left, indeed. So hello, Blake. Hey, how's it going, Dan? Good. So Blake, you might recognize from Help From Future Self, another podcast in the world of Keyforging podcasts. And then Alex is, uh, yeah, he's our one of our Discordian OGs and is uh, known as the Nick of Slots in the Sanctimonious Discord. So they've come on today to talk about preparing for big tournaments, a.k.a. Vault Tours, Primes and store championships, since those are kind of the big things happening right now. And both of these players have had a reasonable amount of success at big tournaments. I think Alex has two day twos at Gen Con. Blake has a day two at VT Vegas. So apparently they know how to get there. With your help. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had varying experience there. So Blake, I crushed over and over again. And then Alex crushed me over and over again. So, I mean, it really doesn't matter. I just have to play against you, apparently. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose against me. You just need to play against me. And something good happens then when you go to a big event. So, <laughs> join the Discord <laughs> and start pinging me for your Vault Tour and Primes testing. You're like one of those those troll dolls. We just need to rub your tummy and then we're, we got the luck to go forward. <laughs> That's right. I'm the flint rock that you just need to chip off and get those sparks. All right. You guys have any inspirations? If not, we can skip inspirations and just go right into the main topic. I think there's a lot of meat there. What's inspirations? I don't usually listen to your podcast. Oh, Burns. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm joking. My inspiration is uh, is actually Piranha Monkeys. They're, they're forever and will always be my inspiration now. So I, I won a store championship last weekend, and it was in large part due to uh, double piranha monkeys with a double glimmer in an AOA sealed environment. And then it crept up in a bunch of my other decks I play as well. And I just have a new appreciation for the piranha monkeys. And uh, I've decided to call them my spirit animal moving forward. They're kind of cute in a weird way. <laughs> in a Halloween kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, uh, like gremlins. Yeah, fair. Just don't feed them after dark. Don't get them wet. All right, Alex, inspiration. My inspiration is I've been doing a local Keyforge league, um, and we're nearing the, uh, this is actually the last week of the league, 
And guys, it has just been a super uh, blast for me to actually get to play some uh, Keyforge live in person. I've really loved just getting to build out the community where I live, um, get people excited about Keyforge and uh, get some people playing some new stuff we actually had most of our most of the time we've had like like between four to eight people come and we had a week where 12 people showed up and i was like man we're we're really booming right now (laughs) the dirty dozen i've also uh and just so you guys know i wasn't taking it easy on anybody i dropped three games in the entire league um it was about two months long so uh they were getting they were getting it on hard mode nice so how did you do your league? Was it like you determined like to play like this deck has to be used moving forward or could it be switched? You could you could cycle decks each week. Um, and what we did was we worked it out with our uh, our LGS and basically you paid a $20 fee. You could come in anytime you wanted to and not have to pay. Normally you'd have to pay a fee to play, but as long as you were playing Keyforge, you didn't have to pay the fee. And then um, we had a once a, ne- once a week league night where basically you could jam three to four games uh, and it was all uh, it was all adaptive so uh, that's basically about all you had time for in uh, in before the store would be closing down but um, three to four games of adaptive and you got points based on how many wins you had um, and uh, we tell we've tracked those over the whole course of the league in addition to there was a winner each night of the league in points and so if you won the night of the league you got uh, a deck and then if you won the overall league i think you're gonna get like a play mat or some such oh that's cool nice. I like that. all right uh yeah let's stay on the league topic i guess my inspiration will be that season two of sanctimonious league uh the group stage has come to an end so thank you everybody that participated all 72 plus i think 12 more in the late comers lead or 14 more in the late comers league i don't know there's a lot of people that played and most of the games got played so well done everybody um the single elimination stage has begun and league season 3 will be starting probably after worlds collides actually officially comes out and i think we're looking at maybe doing a sealed adaptive worlds collide league since it's landing so close to worlds collide but that's still to be confirmed and um, yeah, it was really fun. I got to play a lot of good games and I'm fortunate enough to make the cut this time. So we'll see how far I can go. But yeah, so that does it for inspiration. So let's move on to the main topic. So preparing for a big tournament, AKA a VT, a prime or a store champs. So we'll start off by talking about Archon events, because all of these tournaments can come in different formats, either Archon sealed, and I think even reversal is an option, but I don't know that we'll cover reversal because I don't know how many how many stores are actually selecting reversal as an option. I think it's more likely that you see an Archon or a sealed event pop up for these. So we'll start in the Archon format. So the first point I have is evaluating the current meta. So Blake and Alex, when you went into your tournaments, how did you kind of how did, what what tools did you use to kind of get a lay of the land? For me, I wasn't really using like any sort of predetermined metric based on data. I kind of was just thinking about what you're seeing a lot of. So if you jam on TCO, if you kind of you hear things like decks that are being played, stuff like that, like and then being wary of, I guess, the outliers that people are playing because of the shenanigan value that exists. I think Dan, you would fall into that category. <laughs> 
and um, it's all I play. Yeah, and and so it's just kind of being aware of what's there. So things that I was thinking of was the proclamation decks in that category, the Martian generosity key abduction decks, and then from there it was really like expecting to see a lot of dis with control the week because I don't know if you guys have noticed, but if you jam like games competitive games on tco i know you guys have the discord thing where you set up all your games but i do in the morning when i do crucible and coffee just set up random games and i would say nine out of ten times i'm playing against a coda control the week deck it's a very much like feels like the one deck that everyone is just playing and it almost feels like the token deck to play if you want to be competitive whether that's true or not i don't know how you guys feel about that but that was one thing i did notice I'd say that's pretty true. Like Control of the Week has been proven to be super powerful, and there's a lot of, amazingly enough, uh, with the AOA only meta, so AOA and Coda, yeah, the Coda Control of the Week decks seem to have a pretty big advantage over the AOA decks just for efficiency, and Control of the Week is such a powerful card. If you get that in doubles and triples, it, it can, uh, can time walk you for a few turns. Turns out making your opponent skip a turn is strong. It's, it's pretty good. Alex, did you do you have anything to add? Any any places that you looked for kind of meta meta layout? One thing that I I did take stock of was actually what kinds of decks do I see being purchased a lot for high amounts? Um, that's a I think it's a it's a kind of a loose thing, but if you notice like, okay, control the weak decks are going for three or hundred three or four hundred dollars even when they're pretty mediocre if there's three copies of the card you recognize wow people really value that uh that couldn't that archetype and maybe that style of um that style of play so that was one thing i considered i did do what blake talked about and also consider what are people um maybe what are people playing against me um on tco i i still may i still do actually believe this that um the competitive lobby of TCO is fairly, um, I think, applicable to the types of decks you'll see on day one of a Vault Tour. I agree. In that, it's super varied. Like, so day one, you may come up against somebody playing this super high tier deck, or you may play somebody who they picked up a deck, literally they just picked up a deck, and they're like, hey, I'll play this Keyforge tournament, why not? Um, I've had but I had both of those, uh, you know, those matchups in the tournament. So I think that the competitive lobby is a really good um, test environment for that. And that's kind of one of the ways that I determine, okay, this seems to be, you know, like what people are favoring. I think the biggest thing, too, is knowing how well your deck actually matches up to those certain types of uh, archetypes. Um, that's a that's going to be a big part in your consideration of like whatever you're hitting as the most popular deck type. You need to start thinking about: Do I actually have decks that would be a good answer to that? I'll just close out like one thing too. Like I haven't gotten to go to a lot of these big tournaments, but I know that I've been helping people prepare and stuff. I will look. We've got a Vault Keeper channel, and there's a spreadsheet in the Vault Keeper channel that has all the top sixteen deck lists for all the Vault tours that have occurred. And it is pretty interesting looking through those deck lists and just kind of seeing what did day two and kind of looking at the cards, seeing if there's any kind of certain archetype of deck that seems to be performing better. And again, it's 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 a lot of Dish Shadows X <laughs> decks. So, and I think you use that to like help me because you basically looked at that, evaluated, then decided to choose your decks based on what you had that kind of fit those parameters, right? 
A little bit, yeah. No, I just grabbed a bunch. So I've got a fairly vast collection of good to great decks. Great to a couple excellent decks. And yeah, I mean, I just, I've got them kind of all over the archetypes because I've kind of acquired a bunch of different archetypes just to see how they play in my own hands. But yeah, um, so that brings us to the next point. So what decks do you have that are similar to those decks? So the ones that you're identifying as being the strong ones or which decks do you have that have a good matchup versus that style of deck? So what would you say is more important, Alex? Would you rather have one of the decks that everybody's bringing or are you going to try to find something that counters that meta? As much as it is possible, you would prefer, it's preferable to me to go counter meta. I mean, there's always the rationale of, you know, uh, don't, uh, don't beat them, join them. Um, but I think that honestly tapping into what is, what is considered strong and finding ways that you can capitalize on that. Um, the more that I play Keyforge, the more that I realize that who wins the game, a big part of that is deck matchup. What kind of what cards are in the deck that are good counters to other cards? Um, what overall game strategy is going to be prevalent? Um, and even like, I'll, I mean, for my case, I chose my deck Senbrow, um, which, uh, you know, I had gotten through a trade when I was playing with it. Um, or, you know, prepping with it. One of the things that I realized is I have zero ways to answer artifacts. And how much does that matter? And what I came down to is not that much. Heart of the Forest was just a thing. Like AOA had been out for like three months at Gen Con, something like that. Um, and so I was like, the amount, the likelihood that I'm going to play a Heart of the Forest deck or even a deck that I can't just beat, even if it has artifacts, is probably pretty minimal and i just chose to take the risk knowing hey if i do happen to play somebody who's playing a heart of the forest deck there's no way i can win probably unless they make a mistake nope i learned that one i made two mistakes against them playing my good heart of the forest deck before i realized i could actually burst to seven no that's that's very well said um blake anything to add about trying to select counter meta the, the thing that I'm just thinking about is my perspective. I think we're both coming from different perspectives because all the tournaments I've played, I've played a Grand Championship, a Store Championship, and a Vault Tour, and all of them, I was never playing Archon. So I played Sealed Triad, Archon Triad, and then Sealed Survivor in, in all three of those events. So like I don't have that experience of actually playing just the best of one. They've all been essentially like, well, I guess the Sealed Survivors, but they're all like multiple games. And so I feel like when you're selecting decks, when that exists, it creates a much greater consideration. Well, we'll get into that more. I, I kind of grouped the triad in with Archon since you're actually pre-selecting your three decks. Yeah, but again, for the meta, I would I would list, I would kind of go the same way as like you. For me, I didn't have a huge selection of top tier decks. Like I have a lot of decks, but ones that I consider Vault Tour worthy, the list was much shorter. So I kind of just went to uh, play to my strengths. And if they fell within the meta, then they fell within the meta, so to speak. No, and that it was very true. I mean, you opened one of your three triad decks, what, like two weeks before VT Vegas? Yep, <laughs> I did. It was a Coda Rush deck that did not have Shadows, Dis, or Logos in it. Oh, ooh, <laughs> spicy. Yeah, it was. You went so counter. Yeah, that one was a little counter. And it got banned a lot. Yeah, the thoughts I'll add. I've been saying this all over the place now, too, that uh, the current meta is so steel and capture heavy, like, Pretty much at the top levels, you can expect that your opponents are probably going to have a lot of amber control, and they're going to pull you off check a lot. Um, 
I know me and Jake on this very podcast said that Key Charge is a terrible card, and we were the OSAM against it, saying that it wasn't efficient. But that was kind of more in the early days before everybody had like super amber control because there wasn't a million decks registered in the vault. <laughs> and so you didn't have to worry about it as much. But man, I really feel like countering the meta right now is having some ways to forge keys outside of just the forge a key step. Um, whether it's key charge or choda or key abduction or I don't I guess redacted is one, but don't try to get that one off. <laughs> like might makes right. Just, you know, these other ways to forge keys. There's more coming in Worlds Collide that will greatly enhance this ability too, which is really amazing and really exciting because yeah, with all the steel and capture, like you can really blink people's hands when they're trying to set up like a big too much to protect play or even just a bait and switch to nerve blast or a charrette charrette lash of broken dream you know just there's all these different ways right now for people to either make the keys cost way more or just to pull you off checks so that you have to keep banging your head into that wall over and over again turn after turn where if you have that key cheat you just play your turn slap your key cheat down forge your key and you leave your opponent sitting there with you know blank cards now that too much to protect doesn't feel so good in hand when your opponent's at one amber. And there are some spicy key cheats in Worlds Clyde. I know we're not talking about that, but there's so, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a lot more of a concern with Worlds Clyde. I would agree. Yeah, no. Do you think part of that is, I know this is a little bit off topic, but do you think part of that is uh, because of the fact that Coda does steal and capture so heavy that they wanted you to have ways to counter Coda in that way by having more opportunities to non-forge step forging? I mean, it seems like it because it seems like a lot of the cards in Worlds Collide as this quick aside are just really pointed at hating out Coda decks really hard. Yeah, <laughs> there's just a lot of ways in Worlds Collide where there's certain cards that really punish Coda decks pretty hard and they don't punish AOA decks quite as hard for what they're doing. I, th- I think that for me, I think that I'm coming from the perspective of it seems like what they were doing from a design perspective is actually not even trying to counter Coda as much as pushing new um strategies they seem to in my opinion not really like uh cards very much that gain you a bunch of amber um unless they're very combo oriented they don't want uh, they're not you'll notice that with the last two sets they're not printing a lot of like things like virtuous works um or even ghostly hand um that's just like there's there's a lot less i'd say printed amber um, but a lot mm-hmm. more potential for big amber swings where you burst out all of a sudden with eight, eight or 10 amber. Um, and I think we saw that in AOA, but I think that they've pushed that. And I think when you when you push to like a burst strategy, a key cheat becomes a lot more important because there's so many cards that would, would or not so many, but there's definitely punisher cards for uh, having a bunch of amber. So it's a way of kind of like capping it off and giving those those decks uh, that competitive edge against all sets and including Coda. Yeah, I I see that too. It's like just the last point, so Dan can move on. It's just that they they the idea of the game was to have a board and interact, and Coda basically kind of circumvented that in a way because of the, all the printed emperor. And I think that's what they're moving towards. Yeah. <laughs> They want you to play the board, yeah. and they want you to care about what's on there. Yeah. Sorry for hijacking your podcast, Dan. <laughs> we collided into worlds. All right, so we've evaluated the meta. We're now looking through our collection and or shared collections with us. Um, and we're going to be selecting our deck and testing. So if we're playing just solo Archon, we'll just kind of go with that mindset. 
I think you're pretty safe picking about three to four decks that you're really considering. Would you guys say that's that's about right? I don't think you'd want more than that because you're just going to end up hurting your ability to efficiently test and get in those reps. And also I would say as a side note kind of to this collections ideas, like if your friends are offering their, their decks to you, don't be too proud to accept one of those decks just because it's not yours. I mean, if you want to win, you got to consider all of the most uh, best options available to you because most of the top players will be doing that. So you'll be at a disadvantage if you don't take that into consideration. Absolutely. I find that Keyforge more than most games is a game where you have to like kind of check your ego. You want to have great decks, but sometimes that's why, I mean, that's why Sanctimonious has even grouped together in a community team is just, and why teams I think are forming in Keyforge. It's because it's a lot harder because of the randomness of deck opening. Even if you bought 10 display boxes, you may not open a Vault Tour quality deck. There is the possibility of that happening. I don't think it's likely, but that, hey, that could happen. And so especially when you're playing like something like Triad, where you need three competitive decks, yeah, you got to be able to accept help there. Um, I will say, I I I do want to say, though, on the deck selection, I would actually argue that you should have no more than two decks in consideration. I mean, unless you're playing Triad, obviously, uh, then you have to have three. But um, if you're playing Archon solo, you need to you need to narrow it down fairly rapidly to at least two decks. And I would say within a month or two of of the event, you need to narrow it down to one deck. Um, because you need the reps. Archon solo to me is the format that is all about repetition and it's all about knowing without having to think very hard exactly what to do in in the situations that come up and that really comes from lots and lots of reps ben the monkey played senbrow at collinsville and i think he said this but he played uh, a speed sigil into a witch of the eye um and that's a consideration that happens all the time with speed sigil like do i play speed sigil do i not play speed sigil and i think that that to me that's like a 200 game decision because what he did was very very minor playing speed sigil against a deck versus not playing it but the only reason i know how important it is is because i've played so many games with that deck and knowing how much you can get punished from doing that against that particular set of things no, perfect. And yeah, I kind of had it narrowed down. I guess I narrowed it down a little bit later in the process. They don't always announce events with that much time into it. Collinsville, I didn't have that much time to select my deck. And uh, I, th- I felt like it kind of showed, to be honest, in, in my performance. Yeah, when you're playing a combo deck, a really, really fun combo deck yeah. that I lost to a lot in testing. So I'm sad that it didn't uh, go off on other people as hard as it, it always did against me high variance strategy mr double battle fleet every single time i played you so three to four decks i think i mean three to four so like two yeah if you can really narrow it down but if there's a few that you're really considering if you're if you have enough lead time i think three to four you're pretty all right on because you can start um testing those decks um i put in the notes that i think it's better to find a test partner like i know the tco comp room is a good place to go but i think like testing with a partner that you can especially if you can set up voice chat while you're playing so you can kind of talk through things because at this point you're not like when you're testing you're not really i mean you're playing to win but at the same time you're playing to gain experience and if you can have a voice chat with your opponent while you're testing um just all the like you can kind of talk through some of your turns and be like hey all right here's a situation you know what do you think would be the best route here i I agree with that like you said practice isn't about winning although like you know ideally your deck is doing that if it's a good one Um, right 
uh, like it's about knowing what to do in certain matchups, knowing what to do when I get a bad hand, how do I get out of that hole or is my deck able to do that? If you don't have a lot of time, I feel like a test game where you can play somebody that you know and that you can kind of curate the testing. So say you need to practice against like hunting witch decks, like you can ask your friend to play a hunting, like their best hunting witch deck or give them your best hunting witch deck to just pilot against you. So you can see how the deck that you're testing that you're trying out does against that. And then, I mean, I just, I feel like one game played with somebody that you could have voice chat with where you can talk before, during, and after the game probably equals like four random games, maybe. Like if just random, I mean, you're not getting as much experience as far as like playing game over and over again, but you got the curated testing that you really needed. So if you're limited in time, I really, really recommend finding a testing partner. Blake, what do you think? I, I cannot agree more. I mean, I had the privilege of having two testing partners because you and Joe X073D on the Discord uh, were both in my so corner. Good. And helping me out. And ideally, if you can get two players and do the thing where they're both able to make decisions from the one player's perspective against the person who's going to the vault tour, you, um, Joe said it best, like you're doing this basically eliminates the player error. So you're always going against the most skilled possible plays that exist within each given turn because you have two minds thinking it out against the one player. And I found that extremely valuable. So if you can have two players as well, you're also getting two different minds if you're individually playing. So, I mean, there is the thing that I think if people are constantly playing within the same group of people, you're going to start to know the, the patterns of their style of play and it's going to influence the way that they play the game, which may not actually end up representing what you go against when you go into a vault tour. So that's why you do want to have some randomness and not just a singular person because that could actually negatively affect you uh, potentially in a situation where you're in a tournament. I think being able to set up to the archetypes, I think that probably went a long ways in our yes, testing with I you, agree. Blake, for the uh, for Vault Tour Vegas, because me and Joe have a fairly vast array of archetypes that we could pilot effectively against you, so you kind of got an idea of how all your decks went against the different archetypes. Yeah, I would completely agree. And I did the same for Alex, but I just lost with everything that I tried against him, so... I don't know how effective it was. I actually have a question for Alex because uh, you mentioned how <laughs> you need to spend like a month or two basically really getting to know that deck. Let's say you're in a situation where for listeners, you suddenly realize you didn't think you're going to get to go to a vault tour, then you suddenly can, or it was announced and there was a very short time between announcement and when it actually is. What would your strategy be then to ignore the meta and then just go with a deck that you know is vault tour quality and you have the most reps at that point? I think so. I mean, I wouldn't, Personally, I'm not going to, and this is some people I feel like have more comfortability with, uh, with like maybe going in, uh, fast and loose with a deck that they haven't played with. Um, I am just the way that I think and my comfortability level of, I, to be honest, I can, I can find that environment a little bit stressful, like being in a tournament game can feel a little bit stressful. So I just need the um, kind of the comfort blanket of, I know this deck really well. Um, and I mean, in the case that, and I mean, that's what I did in, uh, I ultimately what I did when Caldwell and when, which I still think was the right thing to do. I'm going to play, I know that I'm going to play better with a deck that I'm having fun with. And for me, I'm going to have fun with a deck that um, is, 
you know, I know it's tricks. I know it's a little in is idiosyncrasies. And so I think that that's what I would do if I were placed in that situation, even again. Um, and I, I had a couple of decks that I thought were pretty good, pretty good calls. Um, and, you know, it just comes down, you just, at the end of the day, you always just play, play the best thing you can. And then cards how fall, how they fall. Um, it was a, I feel like there's a lot, I mean, more than, I don't know if everybody feels this way, but probably they do. Um, but there's, there's a lot to be learned from even a negative 100%. outcome of, of a tournament performance. You can learn a lot about the game and learn a lot about um, maybe where, where you need to improve. And that's what I felt like Collinsville. Collinsville was like a huge learning experience for me. And I realized like, I don't like high variance strategies. I prefer, um, I prefer things that are more consistent when I can, because I just, that was just not a fun experience to me to be like, oh man, I, I need to draw these exact three cards where I, to, and if I do, I win the game. And if I don't, I don't, there's no possible way for me to win. And that's very much the the situation with the deck that I brought there. I hope that that answers the question, but that's does, kind of where yeah. I would land on uh, going. If you have to prep quickly, go with something that you have comfortability with, um, that you've played with, as long as you feel like it's actually vault worthy right. now if it's not a if you don't have a deck that's like that i would definitely just let somebody lend someone out and just r- rip it as best you can fair yeah i also can't wait for and i hope that keyforge goes in this direction where we have a best of three is the standard for games because i feel like it's something we we will need at some point because i i feel like just the single elimination is not a fair representation of of what a deck can do at times or player skill yeah, yeah it's, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Variance plays a huge factor in a best of one because you could just draw things out of order or draw two, two, twos, and just no matter yeah. what you do, you're just kind of up a creek. If that happens, there's not really much you can do about it. But in the best of three, you at least get two more games then to yeah set that set that right. It's pretty much standard, I think, in every single card game other than Keyforge right now, too. Most of the ones that I know of, yeah. For the most part, although I guess Hearthstone laddering, but whatever. That's a that's a whole different thing. It's not really a tournament. It's just an ongoing. Um, but yeah. All right. So around two weeks or so before the event, you really want to lock in on the deck. If it's a solo archon or if you're in a triad format, your three decks, you just want to have that lineup set and then just commit to those going forward. Like no more, no more uh, second thoughts. Just jam those three, jam that one, learn it as best you can. And yeah, just prep for the tournament. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think I got to that point where I decided, you know what, these are the three I'm sticking with. I found all the things that I was looking for, and I, I did do last-minute changes right at the end. And then I decided, no, I like these, and I'm, I'm committed to them, and it's just about learning them now because I know they have what I need within the parameters of what I chose my lineup for. And if I'm not winning, that could be due to player skill and still learning the deck. And I mean, I think bouncing Death Quark, they mentioned something that I found quite interesting was you don't necessarily have to win a game when you're testing to know if the deck is doing what you want it to do. And I think that's kind of a valuable thing as well, because if the deck is still achieving certain aspects of why you chose that deck within a game, but things like variants come into play, it's still a valuable test and you're still seeing like, okay, it did do that and it did answer to this thing. It's just this happened in this order, which didn't benefit me. And I I think that's something to keep in mind. Like if you have an idea of what you want your deck to do and you're still 
proving that even if it's not winning, that can also be valuable. Okay, let's cover a few Archon variants. I think I just have three listed here because I think they're the three main ones. So Solo Archon, I mean, there's not a lot to say about Solo Archon that we've already said. Um, pick your best deck, learn it really well, so that way, yeah, you're, you can, uh, not autopilot, but you just, you're aware of the different situations you can find yourself in with the deck and how you need to maneuver around those situations. Um, anything to add, Blake or Alex, on Solo Archon? I think I think I, the last thing I'll say, Archon, um, Solo Archon, is I think the word we've been using is counter the meta, but I really think that um, a better way of saying that is to say you need to choose a deck that fits well into the meta, uh, meaning you need to have fairly positive matchups. It doesn't have to be like you have this super polarizing, like you win 80% of the games against all of this type of deck, although if you can find that awesome, um, it means you need to, in general, have a positive matchup against the majority of the popular styles of decks. If you can't beat a Control the Weak deck with your Solo Archon deck, you're prob- it's probably not a good choice because you're definitely going to see yep. that, right? Um, yeah. Blake, final thoughts? I uh, know. I feel like we've done, done well with this. All right. Uh, Archon Adaptive. So I think the main difference with Archon Adaptive really goes into deck selection. I feel like in an adaptive format, you kind of want to find an off-kilter deck that you have, one that plays that's powerful when piloted correctly, but can very well be piloted incorrectly. Um, I think um, I like I've got a reverse time deck that I like for this matchup. Uh, it's a really slow grindy deck, and you it's not readily apparent, but there's two effervescent principles. And the whole goal of the deck is just to start arising disc creatures and just playing the disc lineup over and over and over again. Um, it's kind of su- super counterintuitive and super grindy, but you can actually lose really fast with it if you don't realize that's the deck's game plan. So that's been my like primary adaptive deck for that reason. Um, just because I've put in the time with the deck, I know the the way it wins and the way it loses, and the way it loses. Yeah, as if you are like reverse time at the wrong time or something. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Adaptive. What's what's changing in your mind with your deck selection and prep process? I like to choose for adaptive a deck that is powerful, um, but has exploitable weaknesses. Um, my favorite, my favorite actually adaptive deck is uh, the same one that I played in Collegeville, Substantial <laughs> Holden of the Acropolis. It's a very difficult. It's one of the most difficult decks um, I've ever played in terms of the decision making you have to do. You have to. You're constantly doing with that deck. I'm constantly calculating probabilities. I'm counting how many cards. You know how much how much of this house do I have left? If I battle fleet for four here, how likely is it that I'm going to hit my second battle fleet? How likely is it if I hit the second battle fleet to hit the key abduction or like you know vice versa? Um, and so why that deck is really good and what it, what it's a what's the, what its exploitable weaknesses is, is two things it doesn't it isn't good at controlling creatures and it isn't um, good at controlling amber um, even though it could just combo out and win the game impossibly when it when it happens 
So uh, people really get stuck with it when I've handed it to them in adaptive and they almost always overvalue how many chains it can have um, if we make it to the third game um, because of how good it plays when it doesn't have chains. And I think that that's really the advantage. Um, with adaptive, I would say really, 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 you have to know the deck that you're handing over to your opponent super well because you need to be able to find the holes in your strategy. And that's why like, you can't... Where, whereas normally I wouldn't love a high rolly deck, in adaptive I love high rolly decks. Um, even though it means maybe my opponent can high roll me, it, it's a lot harder when you play put something like that to know exactly how to play it sometimes. For me, I I haven't played in a vault tour setting, but uh, when I have played adaptive, like in the league and things like that, is I had two decks that I went with for two different reasons. Uh, they're both AOA decks, oddly enough. One of them is my routine job deck, which I kind of value as one of my top decks, if not my top deck. And that one, I just, I know that deck really well. And I'm very comfortable playing that deck with chains. And I have like in league, I think I'm at 11 chains now and it's uh, nine or 11. I can't remember one of the two. And I'm, I just felt very comfortable playing with the chain. So I know what it does and I know what it, what it needs to do once it has those chains. So I'm willing to have that deck in the mix because I know what I can do at what level of chains and the advantage and at what point do I need to start considering giving this to my opponent. And then on the flip side of that is, is like you said, a deck that has more intricate interactions within the deck. Like it's really good. And the way the cards marry together, it does some really cool tricks. And so giving that to my opponent, I think it kind of throws them off with not being able to recognize. And I've seen people make tons of misplays as a result when I use it in adaptive league. So that's for that one. And then, the lastly thing I think about adaptive in general is your own player skill of being able to read an Archon deck list and being able to see the lines of play that exist. So I think almost having a really good sealed knowledge and being able to have strengths in sealed is uh, is a very good skill that translates into adaptive. Definitely. Um, last thing we'll say on adaptive is my favorite game is game two of adaptive when you hand your opponent your deck, the deck that you've hopefully jammed a ton of games with. Like, it's the one time in Keyforge where you know your opponent's deck better than they know it themselves. Like, that doesn't happen very often in Keyforge because normally you're playing against a unique deck every time. But this is the one time in your Keyforge playing career that you are going to know that deck so much better than the person actually piloting it. So it's kind of fun. You just have another extra layer of knowledge. I mean, they kind of have the same thing with the deck you're piloting. But yeah, I just, yeah, I, I enjoy game two of Adaptive a lot. Um, finally, uh, we'll talk about Archon Survival. I guess I didn't list Triad in here. Whoops. <laughs> survival and Triad are kind of the same. In the fact that you have to bring three decks, so the testing process is going to be a little more intense. Um, survival is a little different than Triad, though, in the fact that, you know, you're just going to have decks eliminated. Do either of you have strong feelings about the ordering of Survival with the caveat that whatever decks are still alive, you can play on game or on day two? Um, for me, I my survival has always been two deck survival that I've played, not three. And I always go with uh, play like I've done sealed in both times I've played it, and my my strategy has been play your worst deck first, so that as you get deeper in the tournament, you have the ability to switch over to your good deck. But then, I mean, after the past weekend with my store championship situation, I was getting deeper and deeper into the tournament, and I was basically going in to like people who have been playing 
their current deck way more games than me. And I started to think, I'm like, oh my goodness, maybe I'm actually at a disadvantage now because this deck that I know very well at this point, I'm going to suddenly be switching to a deck that I'm playing for the very first time. And these people have all had more reps, so therefore they have an advantage. Doesn't matter how good this deck is. I don't know how to play it as well as they do. And it's a single elimination. So that started uh, playing into my mind as a strategy in, um, in a sealed environment. In the Archon, Archon environment, I think it's, um, I think it's there's way more options that have to be considered. And if you have three decks, I think you can almost like go good, bad, good in a way because if you you know you can go deep with your good one to start, and then either allow your your middle of the road one to be kind of falling by the wayside to get your best one for day two, or because you want just that extra chance, I think that that makes a difference too. Um, I have to say, I have not, uh, at least on a competitive side, I've not played a lot of survival. Um, I've played a couple side events at fall tours of survival events. Um, my strategy in survival has been, has been typically, I always prep my, my best deck first. Um, that's just, I know that that's not, there's like, I kind of feel like there's kind of an accepted thing that you don't want to preference your best deck first. But my argument for preferring your best deck first is everybody's prepping their worst deck first in a lot of cases. <laughs> and I just beat up on all these people who who have preference their worst deck first. Um, and like you said, I just, I mean, I would rather try to go, my, my, my thought process is I would rather believe in my deck and try to go undefeated with it the whole time. And just believe that, like, if I'm, especially in the art on the sealed side of things, I think that there's a little bit more um wiggle room well, maybe let maybe not um but I, I think in the sealed side of things you kind of just take what you get and i and when i've done sealed survival i still do the same thing i always preference the one i think is the best deck first um but i would say in archon in particular um hopefully you have best deck a b and c to be honest um that's really what you need i think is like you need to have three decks that you think could go all the way if it was necessary to um, maybe you like one of them more than others, but, or maybe you feel like one of them matches up better in the current meta or something. But honestly, you probably need three very competitive decks if you really want to play uh, competitive survival. Um, just, and this is just theory. I have to, again, this is just my thought process, but um, that's where I would land with survival. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like, hey, maybe there's something to preferring prepping your first deck, your best deck first. It's uh, it would definitely be uh, it might take some people yeah. by surprise. No, I mean, a lot of times too, like if you're going to one of these, if it's like a vault tour or a, I think vault tours are the only ones that are doing survival. I don't know if prime. I don't think primes. There's store championships, but I don't know about primes. And I think primes is a triad sealed is what you can do, not soul, not survivor sealed. Sure. I think yep. isn't reversal an option for Prime? Yeah, State? reversal is an option. I just didn't feel like we needed to cover reversal. I don't think many stores are selecting it as an option. So yeah, no, I can definitely see it. And I was just gonna say with like the Voltor, if you're if you're bringing three decks, they're probably all really good. It's like maybe your best deck is just your most rep deck, or maybe maybe there is some power level difference. But yeah, I like the idea from Alex to put the one you're most comfortable with first and. Just seeing if you can ride that a long ways. And I know the counterpoint to that is some people don't want to see that deck knocked out first. So they might put that deck in the second slot just to make sure if they have like a random yeah. fluky loss in the first yeah. with their first deck, then they're not out of that deck entirely because 
in the second slot, you're still getting to probably probably play it on day one. And if you don't actually get to it on day one, brilliant. By that rationale, I would feel like um, second best deck first yeah. would make yeah. sense. Go, go Going like 2-1-3 would probably be. Yeah, I like the idea. And, the, and the, I think you can also go strategy as well in terms of um, thinking about the day. So if you have one of your three as a rush deck, you actually start with that first because then maybe you finish games faster. So therefore giving yourself more breaks and mental your mental strain becomes less as a result because uh, that that was kind of a thought in Triad is if you're playing a rush deck as your first deck, you're going to get through your game faster. And then because they're long games, you actually have more of a break on the mental side of things. And I feel like that kind of could translate as well in that. No, definitely. I Man, I think if I were to do it, I think I would almost want to go 2-3-1 because I just want my one best deck, like the one that I want to play the most on day two against the top, top guys. I know, like, as you get towards the end of day one, you're hitting those top, top guys to battle for those spots. And survival, especially, since you can X2 to get through. Um, yeah, no, I can, I can see the case either way, but I can see 2, two three, one might be my preference, just to leave my favorite deck at the very end. So if I have to, like, scrape by on day one, I'm finishing it out on my best deck. I like that idea, too. Cool. So there you go. There's some different options on Archon. We went super long already. We're at a time amount that's probably good for an episode. So maybe we will hit the sealed variety of events another time because I don't really want to belabor the fact and I have to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> so Blake, where can people find you if they're looking for you on the internets? So the best way to find me is through the Twitter scene and Instagram at BLVD paper fight. That's Boulevard paper fight. And uh, if you like the sound of my voice, uh, you can tune into the podcast. I'm a part of uh, help from future self and we drop episodes every Thursday. Perfect. Alex, where can people find you on the medias of social? Um, you can find me on discord uh, as the Nick of slots, uh, hashtag six, four, one, eight, or uh, I have, uh, I've started a blog uh, which is Proclamation 346E. We'll link the web address in the show notes. How about that? Sounds good. Um, it's it's, uh, it's uh, on WordPress, but um, I've been recently doing a Worlds Collide review, um, which has been really fun. And I'm dropping the I'm dropping about two of those reviews a week. And then after uh, after I get through the review cycle, I'm going to be releasing a strategy article about once a week. Nice. No, I've been reading those. They've been great. Blake, what do you think? What would you rate Manchego on a one through five scale? Two and a half. All right. You nailed it, Alex. Blake's played a lot of Manchego. Yeah, because it's because it, it is so situational, but it, you do have the ability to recur it. <laughs> So there you go. There's a little Worlds Collide, Shadow's House. Blake has a Manchego that did some work the other day against me. So I wanted to see what he put it at. But uh, yeah, uh, you can find me. I'm Dan is someone, D-A-N-I-S-S-O-M-E-1 on Twitter and Twitch. Thank you, everybody that is a Patreon supporter. And if you aren't and you feel so willing to give a dollar a month, we would gladly accept it. Our Patreon marches on. So thank you for that. You can find our mats on Inked Gaming. And the, oh man, when this when this podcast hits, the t-shirt submission contest will be over. Um, so yeah, so thank you everybody for the submissions. They've been amazing. We've been having a lot of fun. Uh, if you want to see all those submissions, I know we've posted it on the Facebook, a few of them. Twitter's hit a couple of them. And then they're all housed in the Sanctimonious Discord, my baby and my love. So yeah, thanks guys for coming on today. Enjoyed talking uh, prepping for tournaments with you guys. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Archons. Archons.
whilst thou preparest for tournaments. Be sure thine ideas are honorable. Make thy claims epic and forge those keys. Yes, you, Canada. <laughs> Duke-a-boom. <laughs>